You may be seated. Good morning. All right, I actually uh, uh, appropriately turned on the microphone, which I don't always do. It's certainly good to be with you this morning. That's not me, I promise. Yeah. I <laughs> uh, also want to introduce you to my wife, Beth. We, uh, this August, middle of August, we will have accomplished 45 years of marriage. Sorry to say successful marriage, but, well, most, by and large, uh, successful marriage. Um, I am the, uh, my title is State Missionary of the Wyoming Southern Baptist Mission Network. Now, that's way too much stuff to remember. I just like to be introduced as Quinn, and I appreciate that uh, very, very much. I am we are originally from Texas. We moved up here 25 years ago to Casper. Pastored uh, Boyd Avenue Baptist Church there in Casper for 22 and a half years until I stepped into this role um, about two and a half years ago, almost three now. And, um, and one of the great joys is getting to go around to visit churches. This is what we do. Uh, I don't have a preaching assignment every week as I do today, but we visit churches. We're still members at Boyd Avenue, uh, but we're there once every three months or so. Uh, we usually show up on holidays, uh, Christmas and, and uh, Easter and that kind of thing. But uh, it's, a, it's a great joy to visit all of the Wyoming Southern Baptist churches. And we've been here before. We've visited here a couple of times previous to this. And it's always a joy to come and be here. Uh, Rondi and Melody are dear friends of ours, as are all the pastors across our state. And that's really what our job is, is to go and encourage, uh, to resource. If uh, churches need something, we're, we're, we do our best to try to help them find uh, that physical need to accomplish what they need to do in their communities. Because it is the church, it is the church uh, that Christ uh, organized. He did not organize the Southern Baptist Convention. He did not organize the Wyoming Southern Baptist Mission Network. He instituted the church and the church is the bride and someday we're going to hear a trumpet we're going to hear the voice of an archangel and jesus is going to come back and lo and behold he is not going to come back and claim the southern baptist church into himself con convention into himself or the wyoming network to himself he's going to claim the church and that's you and that's me that's us and it's important that we remember that and this morning i want to bring you a message, to you a message from the book of 2 Kings uh, chapter 7. We're going to start reading in verses 9 and read through verse 15 in just a moment. And while you're turning there, I'm going to give you some background because you need to understand what has been happening to kind of get the essence of this morning's message. Uh, this is during the time of the divided kingdom uh, of the history of Israel. The southern kingdom is known as Judah and is centralized in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom is Israel, and it is centered in uh, Samaria. Uh, and, um, and at this, this point, Ben-Hadad, the king of the Syrians, has 
begun to, has attacked Samaria, the northern kingdom. And he has laid Samaria to siege. And in the ancient world, uh, sieges, it wasn't that they just would attack the walls like we see in the movies. Uh, they would basically build a, a, an armed encampment all the way around the city and cut the city off from all resources. And if a city did not have a good water source, then the siege would be very short, a matter of weeks, maybe a month or so, and they would collapse. Well, if they had a good water source, which Samaria did, it may take months, months and months in order to uh, basically starve the people out. And that is what's happening. I'm not going to make heavy reference to it, but if sometime after the sermon, uh, preferably not during the sermon, you want to read chapter 6, uh, it is a very disturbing chapter of what is going on within the city that is in the midst of this siege. The siege is being effective. The city is being starved to death. There is famine within the city, and there's not famine in the land, but there is famine in the city because the Syrian army has all supplies cut off and is literally starving them to death. They are in a desperate situation. Then when we pick up at chapter 7, uh, into it just a bit, there appear the four heroes of the story, and they are unlikely heroes. They are four men who have the disease of leprosy. They are social outcasts. They live just at the city gate. Uh, and there they have been living for as, as long as they have uh, been afflicted with, uh, with leprosy. They have been living off the benevolence of the city. Uh, that's the only way they have of, of making ends meet. Uh, they uh, can't mix with their families. They can't do business. They can't hold jobs. They can't, uh, they can't have any kind of religious activity. They can have only, only social contact they can have is with other lepers. And so they are there at the city, and they, like the city, are starving to death. And they sit there, and they have this conversation amongst themselves, and they make this decision. They say, you know, we're here, we're, we're in a desperate situation. Uh, we're going to die here. If we stay here at the city, we're going to die. If we go into the city, they're just going to kill us, because they're not going to give us anything to eat. Uh, and we're, uh, you know, a weight on them. So let's go to the Syrians and see what they'll do. They might kill us, but if so, so will everybody else. Uh, if not, maybe they will have pity on us. Maybe they will put us on the edge of their camp and feed us and we can survive. So they make this decision, and actually it's a very logical decision. They go to the, out to the city, and they, uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to the armed camp of the Syrians, and they find that God had preceded them. He had, during the twilight, uh, of that day, he had caused the Syrians to hear uh, something that wasn't there. It sounded like a great army was coming against them. They heard chariots, and they could hear horses, and they could hear the noise of an army coming against them. And they jumped to the conclusion that the uh, king of Samaria had hired either the Hittites or the Egyptians or some combination to come and attack them. And so they ran for the hills. They just left everything. They left their tents and their horses and their wealth, all that they had, uh, they had acquired in their conquest up to this time. And they just ran for their lives. And no one ever saw them. Now, they never saw the enemy. The enemy wasn't there. God preceded the advance of these four leprous men. So they came there, and they found all of this wealth 
They found these tents in this armed camp, abandoned, and no one was there. So they did exactly what I would do. They ate. They went into the first tent, and they ate all the food they could find, and they, they hid the wealth, and they hid the silver and gold and the clothes and various things. Then they went to the next one, and they started doing the same thing. And at that point, they have come to this interesting perspective or interesting place. Now, here are four leprous men, four social outcasts, four people who were not allowed to have any kind of interaction with anybody. And at this moment in their lives, they are the wealthiest people in the entire country. The Syrians are gone and all that they had left, all the spoils of war that was around them, was theirs. And they possessed it. And they had eaten, and they were going through all the stuff, and they were hiding things because they knew that it would eventually be taken from them. And, and all this was going on. And, and what we see really is a parallel to the spiritual reality that we live in today. I'm going to get to the actual message here in just a moment. I'm going to pick up the narrative uh, in, in just a moment there at verse 9. But the, the spiritual parallel is, is very similar to how we live and what we see in our culture. Because our culture is in a spiritual famine. There's no doubt about it. Uh, our culture is in a mess. So, uh, socially, we're in a mess. Uh, financially, we're in a mess in so many different ways. And no one knows what to do. No one knows where to find relief. No one knows that there is a spiritual and emotional uh, reality that we can come to have. But you see, when we come, when an individual makes that decision, uh, makes that decision of their will that, okay, I've tried everything the world has to offer. I've tried wealth, I've tried fame, I've tried this, I've tried that, and nothing is satisfying me. I am still spiritually starving. There is, is famine in our spiritual world then I'm just going to try Jesus. I'm going to try him. I know those little churches around there, and I don't like that stuff, but I'm going to give it a try. And what a person finds out is when they try Jesus, they find out that there is more to him than they ever imagined. And those of us who bear the name of Christ, those of us who have tried Jesus, who know Jesus, we understand this to be true. And it doesn't surprise us, and it makes sense to us. And we look around and we, we invite people and we work in the community and we share the gospel and we do the very best we can to live as Christ would have us live with folks around us. But yet we see so little response. But yet when we do see that individual response, no matter what their background, no matter where they've come from, no matter what they have said they have believed in the past, when someone comes and actually experiences Jesus. No, not experiences religion, not comes, sits through a, a few songs, or you know, stays awake most of the time in sermons and all this kind of stuff. All of these things, uh, you know, that that uh, that people identify with religion, aren't truly religion. They're not the real Christianity. Real Christianity is Jesus, and it's nothing else. It, now, there are, are things that come from knowing Jesus. We enjoy getting together and singing the songs that, like we sang this morning. Oh, and by the way, I didn't know that last song. That's a new song to me. I like that. That was fun. Um, but, but anyway, uh, we, we enjoy that. 
And then we hear, we open the Word of God and we study the Scripture. And we find out that the Scripture is very applicable to our lives every day. That it makes a difference in how we live. That it speaks to us where we are. Yes, this book was written thousands of years ago. But still, it has an application because it is written and inspired by the same being that created us. God who understands human nature and understands the human condition. He has given us. So we love to study this word and we find that it has meaning for us and it has direction for us. And it gives us comfort when we need comfort and it challenges us when we need to be challenged. And it has all of this power within it. And so we love doing that. But then the world looks at us and says, you folks have lost your mind. Instead of sitting in that church, listening to that guy go on and making you sleepy and all that kind of stuff, you could be out enjoying the good weather. You could be enjoying the lake or the mountains or whatever else is, has the options out there. But yet when they come and they find that the answers that they have looked for in life don't exist in all the places that they have sought, then they come and they meet this man named Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit has some dynamic way that I don't understand of touching people's lives in a way that reveals himself to them. And I've seen him do it hundreds and hundreds of times. And when they recognize who Jesus is, then they begin to understand that God has come before them. And the famine that exists within the city, within the culture, that famine has been removed because the presence of God has come before us and has removed the enemy. And it is Jesus who went to a cross, who died upon a cross, whose blood was shed that would cover the penalty of our sin and bring us into relationship with God. And everything that is taught like that, about that in the New Testament, that shows us the way. And we live in that wealth. Now, that's not to say that being, becoming a Christian, and we know this very well, that everything goes perfectly. We still live in a fallen world. We still struggle with our own particular weaknesses. We still have trials and traumas. Christians get sick. Christians die. Christians uh, do things that are erroneous. I mean, that happens in our lives. But the reality is, is that the, the, the result of that is different. We have something to live for. We have something to live with. There is a spiritual wealth within us that we live and we have that God has given us. And it's not unlike what these four lepers found. They thought the best they were going to do was maybe get a crust of bread. But what they found when God had gone before them is they found all the wealth they could ever imagine. And spiritually, that is exactly what happens to a person who is not related to Christ but they come and they experience him and they find out who he is and they come into his relationship and they find this wealth, they find comfort, they find peace. They don't find perfection in this life, but they find it so much better than what they ever found before. And sometimes we, like these lepers, we tend to hoard what we have. Well, and I've heard, and I've heard Christians say this, well, they know where our church is. And if they want some of what we have, they can come and get it. Now, that's not a Christian statement, but I've heard a lot of Christians say that kind of thing. But the reality is, is we need to be very much like these lepers. And we're going to pick this narrative up in verse 9 now that you've seen the background. 
Because here they are, they're in this wealth, they're enjoying the deliverance, the miraculous deliverance of God, and then they make this statement. And we'll pick up the narrative here, uh, 2 Kings 7, 9. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until the morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and they called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp and hid themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants answered and said, Please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city, let them look that they may either be, uh, become like the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. Therefore they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian camp, saying, Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And so the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. And a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And the narrative goes on from there. But let's, let's take a moment and see what happened here. Here are these four leprous men gorging themselves. They have the wealth. They have security. They have everything the world, you would think, could possibly offer them. And they look to each other, and they finally say, there in verse 9, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go tell the king's household. Now here they are, they've got it made. They have everything. They, they've eaten the first good meal in probably months. No one is uh, throwing stones at them because they're lepers. They have silver, they have gold, they have clothing, they have everything of wealth that could be imagined. And they're sitting there and life is really, really good. But they look over at one another during the night and, and as time transpires, one of them finally says to the others, you know, we're not doing the right thing here. This is a day of good news, and we sit silently. There, within just a very short distance, a very short walking distance, is our city, is the king. And the city, and, and probably some of these still had family members within the city. And they said, we're not doing right. Today is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we don't get up and share this good news with the king's household before daylight, something bad is going to happen to us. And so the reality and truth is, and the parallel here, is this is really a picture of the modern church. 
those of us who do bear the name of Christ. We understand who Jesus is. We have received him as our Lord. We have received him as our Savior. We have put our faith and confidence in the scripture that God has inspired and given us. And in it we find answers, we find direction, and we find life. And we find peace within this. Now again, let me repeat, I am not saying that if a person accepts Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're going to have all the food they want to eat or the type of food they want to eat. Or they're going to have all the silver and gold that, that they want because no one ever gets all the silver and gold that they want no matter how much we may have. But the reality is that we who bear the name of Christ as these men in this historical event, the truth is that we have the great wealth of God. And if we sit here and hold on to this, if we gather this within ourselves, if this is just something that we have and we are, and we never reach beyond ourselves with this truth, then we need to look over at one another and say, you know, brother and sister, we're just not doing right here. Because today is a day of good news. Easter is a time we commemorate a day of good news, the resurrection of Jesus. And while today's not Easter, every day that we, we, we who believe, we live in the glory of the resurrection of Jesus. That is our strength. That is our power. That is the, the, the thing that gave us life and gives us life and continues to give us life. And we live in that power and we live in good news. Even when things aren't going right for us, we still live in good news. We have a church family. We have brothers and sisters in Christ that we can depend upon. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit that will sustain us and see us through the dark days and encourage us. We live with all of this spiritual wealth, and then we look outside, we look across the, the vistas of our, our communities, and we find, and we find very quickly, there are folks that aren't doing as well as we are. And I'm not talking about the people who are poor. I'm not talking about the people who need uh, a helping hand, and we do have some responsibilities there as well. But I'm talking about the people who are spiritually starving to death. They are in famine. And the thing, and the, really the odd thing about that is there's no reason for them to be in famine. God has gone before them. Just as when I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, I discovered that God had gone before me. The resurrection had already taken place. The victory had already been had in Jesus, and all of the glory of God was already here and was upon us and was with us. And I found that forgiveness was waiting for me upon my repentance, upon my confession and upon my profession. Salvation was waiting for me, and forgiveness came to me. And the Holy Spirit indwelled me. And while I haven't always been as faithful to Him as I should be, He has always and will always be faithful to me. And the truth and reality is, is we live in that wealth, but beyond our reach, really very much at our fingertips, we know people whose lives aren't going so well, who have not made that decision, who have not found that Jesus is who He is, and they live in that famine. But today is a day of good news. We have a responsibility to go and to share. We have a responsibility to fulfill that great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples after his resurrection. That we are to go and we are to share this truth with those around us. And while we often 
used the Great Commission to talk about, you know, missions to the ends of the earth, and that is important, we also need to remember that part of that Great Commission was Jerusalem and Judea. You live in your Jerusalem. Green River is your Jerusalem. It's actually part of my Judea, but it's part of your Jerusalem. And this is your mission field. Wyoming is our mission field. This is our place. And I'm here to tell you that if you and I don't boldly come and receive and take up what God has given us in the great fortune that he, he, he extends to us through his resurrected son, and if we don't take that truth and share it with those around us, no one else is going to do that. Say, oh, but Quinn, what about the other churches? Well, hopefully they will, but we're not responsible for other churches. We're responsible for us. We're responsible for what God is giving us to do. We're responsible for our family, for our friends, for our neighbors. We're responsible for our classmates, for our coworkers. Those are our Jerusalem. And we are called and given the glorious responsibility and privilege of being ministers to them, caretakers of them, from a spiritual perspective because we live in the wealth that God has given us and it is time for us to take this truth out and to share it with those around us it is absolutely wrong it is sinful it is a hideous sin for Christians to hoard the good news that we have experienced it's important that we share this now here's a word of warning when we share this truth, let us not be surprised that there are those who will be skeptical. Let's look down at verse 12. And so the king arose in the night, and the servants come, and the, the, the lepers come back and tell his servants, I mean, they can't, can't walk into the king, they're not going to make it that far. They tell his servants that, you know, that it goes through the chain, and finally the word, word that night gets to the king. And so the king arose in the night and his servants, and let's see the king's response. Let me tell you now what the Syrians have done for us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the fields, saying, when we come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. That's without a doubt one of the dumbest things I've ever heard a king say in the scripture. God had already defeated the enemy. The enemy was gone. The good news of God's victory has come to him, and he is skeptical. But before we throw too many rocks at the king of Samaria here at this point, let us also understand and recognize how common this attitude is. When we share the truth, that we, the things that we know to be true because we have lived them, the things we know to be true about Jesus, and we share that truth with others, more often than not, we're going to get some skepticism in return. We're going to get people saying, oh, you know, that's just an old religion, or oh, that's an old superstition, or oh, this is that, or this is that. And my favorite thing we hear in modern days is, uh, you know, we believe in science. Okay, well, so do we. But the reality is, is what does science tell you? Science tells you some things that may or may not be true in certain forms and certain realities. And there are some things that I have had now, and, and, and the reality is, science doesn't lie, but scientists do, okay? Understand that. It's like uh, statistics. Statistics don't lie, but statisticians do lie. 
And, and the reality is, is science, by its very nature, isn't really sure of anything. It has a, a series of theories, and then it goes through a whole series of, of experiments and observations to see whether these theories hold true or not. But it is very, very difficult for science to ever absolutely prove anything. Now, a lot of people believe in the theories. A lot of people embrace these theories. But you see, as soon as the church goes out and we start sharing the truth of what we know to be true about Jesus because we have experienced him, and that, by the way, is part of the commission. That's what Jesus told his disciples. I want you to go be witnesses for me. I want you to tell people what you have experienced with me doesn't say go make great theological arguments. Don't go into scientific experiments. Tell them what you know to be true. There are some things in life I know to be true because I have lived them. I grew up on a dairy farm, and I know it's true that if you scare a dairy cow and make her upset, she's not going to give as much milk. I know that's true. The same thing is, was, was true that if I scared a dairy cow, my dad would punish me quickly and severely. So I learned not to do that. There are truths that we know are true. And I know that Jesus is true. Why do I know that? Because I've experienced him. I have a relationship with him. I have seen him work in big things, and I've seen him work in little things. And I've seen him reveal himself to other people in very small ways, and I've seen him reveal himself to people in big ways. And I have seen him reveal himself to me time and time and time again. I know that he is true. But yet when I share that truth with a non-believer, more often than not, they're going to find some way to explain it away. Isn't that what our world does? It explains away the truth of the scripture. And they do it all sorts of ways. And here the king explains away God's activity by saying, oh, the Syrians are just hiding from us. It's a trap. It's not as good as you think. If we go out there, they're going to kill us. Well, if you stay where you are, they're going to kill you too. But anyway, uh, so this is, is, is what, what, what they, they explain it away. And then we see people today explain away God's existence in all sorts of ways. The very creative nature of God is explained away. I have seen people who would rather believe that our earth was populated by uh, some form of alien seeding of the earth, then they would want to believe, and God said, let there be light. I know people who believe that and want that to be true, and so they embrace that to explain away all the glory of this wonderful creation that God has placed us in. People are always explaining it away, but understand this final truth. Skepticism does not change that which is true, okay? Because someone says, I am skeptical of that, or I don't believe that, that does not change the truth. People in our culture and in our time, it is not uncommon at all that they will say, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That does not negate the truth of that reality. Jesus is alive. He was raised from the dead. The scripture teaches us that, and there is much empirical evidence to that reality. Be that as it may, the truth of the matter is, is that while people will often try to reject the activity of God in our lives and explain it away in some kind of mystic way, 
it doesn't change the reality. Look what happens down in verse 15. And they, they, they finally sent out some guys on chariots to check things out. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed all the road was full of garments and weapons, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And so the messengers returned and told the king. Lo and behold, the king found out that the lepers knew what they were talking about. They found out the, he found out the truth and that his city had been saved, not by his great military leadership, but had been saved by the miraculous hand of God who had come upon the enemy camp. And we must understand that truth is, it holds for you and I. That does not mean, and the skepticism that is in our culture does not mean that we should in any point or in any way set aside the responsibility of sharing the truth. We can't say to ourselves, as tempting as it is, well, I'd go and share the truth with my neighbor, but he won't believe me anyway. You know, I, I grew up fishing, and I've told lots and lots of fish stories, most of them true. But you see, the reality is, whether somebody believes my story or not, I know whether it's true. And that's the way it is here. God has gone before us in the spiritual realm. He has defeated that which separates us from him, the sin that we have perpetrated. He has given his son's blood on a cross that is sufficient to cover our sin and to make us new creation. The great commission that Jesus gave the church after his resurrection is still in vogue and it's still under our authority. We still have that responsibility to find ways of going and sharing and ministering in the name of Jesus so that people will come to him and the kingdom of God will grow and heaven will become more crowded. See, that's our job. That's what we're put here to do. And as we share that truth, there will be some skepticism. But we cannot allow the skepticism to negate our truth. If you've experienced Jesus, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, if he is your Savior, then you have a personal experience with him that no one can deny. And that's what Jesus asks us to go and share. You are to be my witnesses. Tell them what you have personally experienced about me. And basically what he's saying is if you'll do that, I'll take care of the rest. My Holy Spirit will take care of the rest. I will make your efforts valuable. I will touch lives. I will draw people to me. And that's our responsibility. And we have to ask ourselves this question, putting ourselves somewhat in this uh, Old Testament Bible story of these four leprous men. As we have come as believers and found the truth of Christ, and know what the truth of Christ is. We need to look at each other this morning and ask ourselves the question, are we doing what is right? Yes, we are, we are basking in the glory of God. We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We live in his victory. We live in his comfort. We live in his strength and in his power. But are we doing right just receiving it and enjoying it? Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying what Christ has done for us. We need to do that. We need to celebrate that. Church should be a fun place. 
Being with Christians should be a fun activity. It should be a time of celebration every time we get together. But also we need to ask ourselves, are we doing right with what we know to be true? Today is a day of good news. The resurrection of Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the authority of the Holy Word of God, all of these are good things that God has given us. Are we hoarding this into ourselves? If so, then we are not doing right. And we need to change our behavior and reach out beyond ourselves and let this world know why. Well, one thing God told us, as my mama used to tell me, when, I, when she would tell me to do something and I would say, why? You know the answer, because I said so. That's really good enough. Because Jesus said so, we need to do it. But in addition to that, that act of obedience, we need to look at our, our neighbors, look at these houses that are here and across our communities. And we need to see people who are hurting, people who are still living in that famine that they believe is there, but really, truly is not that the Spirit of God would come and touch them and draw them close. And they would be a part of His kingdom from today and forevermore. This is what God calls us to do. We need to be obedient to Him. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we stand in Your presence today, and we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your kindness. We thank You that You give us examples in days long, long ago of when men and women did much as they do now. Father, you have won the victory for us. You have gone before us. You've defeated sin. You've defeated death. And we thank you so very much for that truth and that reality. Today, Father, we want to understand that we live in the good news of who you are. But we also understand, Father, that you call us to go to go and to share this truth, what we know to be true, with those around us. And Father, we're going to trust you to take our faithful service to you and to honor you with who you are and what you will accomplish. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for being the good God you are. You care for us. You gave us your son. Your spirit is upon us. May he be with us and guide us but all that we do. And I pray for your blessings upon this congregation, this fellowship, upon Rondi and Melody and their family. And I pray for your blessings upon this church as they minister here in this community. Give them strength. Give them wisdom. Give them courage. Father, bless them with your presence and your grace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, your living Son. Amen. Okay. I think you're going to come and lead us. Song.